The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Go live. Let's see if it works. And I think we're live. Let's see. It says it's setting up the webinar, redirecting to YouTube, and we're live. Welcome, everybody, to Dog Shirt Television, a highly experimental, highly improvisational uh, series that we're going to be doing. For those of you who have watched In Lieu of Fun, this will not be too much of a surprise. For those of you who've never watched In Lieu of Fun, buckle up because it's what we do when we're not allowed to have fun anymore. We are once again allowed to have fun. But one of the things that, um, you know, not being able to have fun did was it interrupted a lot of our reading because, you know, we had all this extra time. And so we used it to not read things. Um, and these days, the only things that I am actually allowed to read are briefs filed either by or against Donald Trump. And as much as I find that uh, wonderful, uh, a great way to spend my professional life, uh, it is also a little bit monotonous. And so I decided that I was going to start reading again, read all the things that I've been meaning to read and to force myself to do it and to force all of you to do it too. I was going to have a show about it in which I invited authors of books I wanted to read on. And I thought, who better to start with than Sean Mursky, who uh, among other things, he has many uh, 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 amazing things in his background, but among other things, I think, uh, got his start writing in public, mostly writing for Lawfare as a law student. Uh, he is uh, one of the best uh, student contributors we ever had, and he is now the author of this we May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus, which is uh, recently published uh, this spring, right, Sean? Late June, yeah. Yeah. So I um, adore this book because it is counterintuitive in just about every way that a book can be counterintuitive. I learned, uh, I think the technical term is a shit ton from it about all these aspects of, of U.S. foreign policy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, of which I was dimly aware, like that we intervened in a whole lot of Latin American countries over and over again, and that, you know, the Marines went to Nicaragua and stuff, and that we occupied Haiti for 19 years, uh, but that I actually didn't really know anything about, and I kind of thought had a weird uh awful negative odor of imperialism and Yankee go home and all of that. And I read this book and basically learned that it was the story of the Iraq war over and over and over again, only with a twist, which was that 
we kind of won, um, despite, as Bob Dylan would say, losing every battle. And so, Sean, I want to start with how we should understand the overall thesis of this book. Is this the story of how the U.S. basically did the Iraq war over and over and over again for like 85 years? Or is it the story of how we did the Iraq war over and over 85 years and it worked great? A little bit of both. I think why not both? Uh the the story that I tell in the book uh, starts in the uh, at the beginning of the Civil War and goes all the way up to uh, the be- end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War. So it's about a century of American foreign policy. Uh, and if you want to put it in Trumpian terms, this is the story of how America became great uh, rather than became great again. Uh, it really is the story of how we started out as this war torn republic and ended up in this you know kind of global superpower status. And the argument that I make in the book is that this kind of rise to to international greatness uh, was a journey that sort of took us through our region, through the Western Hemisphere, and that before we could really have the freedom of action that we needed to be a global superpower abroad, we needed to create a sphere of influence uh, in our immediate region and then consolidate that in a way that basically made us, uh, practically speaking, invulnerable. And so the story... Uh, It it has a lot to it, but the focus is kind of on this period from 1898 to 1918, when we just went on this rampage across the region. Uh, I think by my count, we used force or threatened force an average of nearly three times a year against our neighbors. Um, And some of that was relatively minor uses of force. We landed Marines to protect embassies. Other times, Ben, as you mentioned, it's occupying Haiti for 19 years. It's occupying the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Cuba, uh, along with a host of annexations, protectorates, and all sorts of very bloody interventions. Um, And the argument that I make in the book is that a lot of this was essentially about nation building. So the, the analogy to Iraq, I think, is exactly right. Our goal in doing these interventions, or at least I argue, uh, was to essentially stabilize these states, many of which were at that time basically failed states or failing states. Uh, And we wanted to do that because we were afraid that if we didn't do it, some European great power would come in and do it and essentially kind of insert itself into the region in violation of the longstanding Monroe Doctrine uh, and end up with a permanent place uh, in the Western Hemisphere. And we didn't want that. And so we thought the best way to prevent that was to basically fill those power vacuums with our own power. In one sense, this was the Iraq War over and over and over again, because what ended up happening is we tried to nation build and we tried to do it with as little violence as possible, as little force, as little coercion. And inevitably, our efforts to nation build were just a disaster, right? And every time we applied a little bit of force, we ended up destabilizing these nations even further, which meant we had to apply more force. And we got sucked into these long kind of occupations that at the end of the day really didn't yield much in terms of stability. When we left Haiti, when we left the Dominican Republic, when we left all these other countries, the record that we left was not, you know, these happy, prosperous, uh, democratic societies. It was societies that tottered along for a few years before collapsing right back into civil war and revolution or uh, basically being taken over by authoritarian strongmen, uh, neither of which were really kind of the goal that we were going for. Uh, And so at that level, it really was a rock over and over again. On the other hand, uh, the main goal, the kind of overarching objective of all this was to prevent Europe from coming into these power vacuums. And I, I think you can debate about whether we needed to go as far as we did to kind of accomplish that goal. 
But there's no dispute that by the time we basically started ramping up these interventions in the 1920s, we basically accomplished the goal. And at that point, we had achieved that sort of uh, uh, regional supremacy that uh, I mentioned earlier. All right. So we're going to we're going to go back to every component of that because there is no component of it that isn't fascinating. But I want to start with you. Because you are a lawyer at a big firm in Washington, you were a Supreme Court clerk, and you were uh, an appellate court clerk, you've done all the fancy lawyery things, and secretly, when no one was watching, you were a foreign policy historian of U.S. foreign policy in the 19th century. Um, How did that happen, and how does one become a closet historian while practicing law? Uh, The answer is very, very slowly. This book took me eight years to write. I had to take an entire year off as a sabbatical. Uh, How did you get into the subject? I mean, it's not like, you know, you're you're sitting there at Arnold and Porter and you're like, yeah, but in 1865, (laughs) the, 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 the French tried to install an emperor in Mexico. Like, how how did you get into this subject? So, but first off, that's not that far off from from the actual truth, which is that oftentimes I am sitting in my office at Arnold and Porter (laughs) and daydreaming about, you know, European interventions in the hemisphere. No, but the truth is I got sucked into this. Uh, I I actually blame Jack Goldsmith, uh, your your partner in crime at Lawfare, uh, because uh, for a variety of reasons, the... uh, Historians are often fond of pointing out that rising powers tend to be aggressive and expansionist, right? And by that, we basically mean that uh, rising powers tend to pick fights with other great powers, they tend to bully their neighbors, and they try to just dominate greater and greater slices of their regions and the world. And I've always been a China guy. I've been sort of focused on East Asian security issues because for various reasons, I think that is sort of the central geopolitical question of the century. Um, And uh, and China, I think, is sort of bearing out the conventional wisdom that rising powers are aggressive and expansionist. But we have a long runway to go. And I've never been very satisfied by the explanations as to why it is that rising powers act that way. And so at some point, uh, I got it into my head that it would be sort of fun at some point to look into the question of like, why is it that rising powers act this way? Um And then uh, I think in one of Jack Goldsmith's classes in law school, we read about a case uh, uh, relating to the bombing of Greytown, which was this uh, little seaport on uh, the eastern edge of Nicaragua that I think in like 1954 or something, or sorry, 1854, something like that, the uh, U.S. Navy just came in and literally burnt the whole town down to the ground. And I remember sort of thinking like, wow, I had never heard of this. This is just like a completely random case that just mentions this offhandedly. I wonder, you know, what led to it. And so a combination of factors convinced me that looking at the United States as a case study for why rising powers act this way would be, you know, kind of an interesting way to to approach the subject. And the bombing of Greytown doesn't make it into the book because it precedes the Civil War. But it it sort of started me out on this this journey, and I thought I was just going to write an article, and then I had dinner with Jack, and Jack, I was you know gushing about the Monroe Doctrine, and he said, number one, don't call your book the Monroe Doctrine or anything like that. No one's going to buy it, which was good advice. And then he said, two, you know, by the way, you're writing a book, and I was like, no, no, no. And then you know, once he said that, it eight years later, it was we are where we are. All right, so. You brought up the Monroe Doctrine. I didn't. One of the first things I learned from this book is that over a basically 
it's more than 100 years, American policymakers are maniacally obsessed with the Monroe Doctrine. And I, I had my high school civics history understanding of the Monroe Doctrine was that President Monroe articulated in a series of messages to Congress that European powers weren't allowed to interfere with the, um, you know, the newly independent, mostly former Spanish and Portuguese colonies, and that we were kind of going to keep them out of the, you know, once, once imperialism was over in the Western Hemisphere, it was done, and that all the European powers kind of snapped to attention and never interfered in the Western Hemisphere again. And that is why we uh, have peace and prosperity in the Western Hemisphere. Turns out, if I'd thought about it, it had to be a little bit more complicated than that. Um, I am interested, first of all, in your sociological historical take, why the Monroe Doctrine, which was, after all, just a set of messages to Congress that European powers should keep their hands off the Western Hemisphere. Why did this have such a hold on American policymakers that well into the 20th century, it is the reference point for, oh, we have to go invade Cuba for the third time because if we don't, the Monroe Doctrine might be upset. Yeah, well, and um, I can't remember if uh, this ended up in the book, but on the 100th year anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine, uh, 1923, there's this like phenomenal ad in the New York Times that I think, uh, I'm forgetting who took it out, I think uh, some uh, religious organization, where it was this prominent quote, and it says, I believe in God, the Constitution, and the Monroe Doctrine. And that was like, I, truly, that was the attitude that policymakers took. I mean, it was right up there with uh, with the Constitution and, and God. It was, you know, at the level, essentially, of what containment became during the Cold War. It was just sort of the central defining part of American foreign policy. But as you said, didn't start out that way. When Monroe uh, delivered his message in 1823, there were a couple articles, newspapers that published saying, you know, hurrah, America. The problem was we had no way of enforcing the Monroe Doctrine. And so for the next 40 or so years, it I wouldn't say languished in obscurity, but it sort of began by kind of falling. At first, it was, I think, caught up in partisan headwinds. And eventually, what ended up happening is if if memory serves in the 1840s and the 1850s it started up being picked up by the democrats and some of the internal democrat or internal debates over things like uh uh, not that this is a, a, a clear reference point but the possible intervention in the yucatan during the 1850s and at the time it was seen as sort of a smokescreen for the um I think expansionist interests of the kind of the slave South, right. As a way of sort of justifying our, us getting involved in Mexico and other places uh, in a way that would lead to slave States entering the union. Um, but I think in part because it was entering the debate and in part because it was starting to get championed at higher and higher levels, including for instance, president Buchanan, uh, it got a real hold on at least half the country. And then you have the civil war and the civil war is really where it just sort of crystallizes because as you mentioned, during the Civil War, uh, France and a, lo- uh, a few other great powers saw the United States in distress and said, aha, this is our moment to essentially uh, uh, re- you know, come back into the Western Hemisphere 
expand our influence and start to uh, kind of make up for the lost ground. Uh, and so France ends up invading and occupying all of Mexico. Uh, it kicks the democratically elected president of Mexico off the throne of Montezuma, puts in a Habsburg emperor as a puppet prince. Um, yeah, we're going to come back to that because that's yeah. one of the, like, I yeah. actually knew about that whole escapade, but that's one of the truly deranged little things that wasn't our fault that happened. Oh yeah. And, and, but the more remarkable thing, and, and again, parts of this just didn't make it into the book for conciseness reasons, but we, you know, the, it's hard to overstate how, uh, how much Americans reacted to that to the point that like during the civil war in like 1864, like the North and the South are still at each other's throats. People are dying on the battlefields. Um, there was very serious conversations had by high level policymakers in both the North and the South about calling a truce in the Civil War and sending a joint army down into Mexico uh, uh, with both uh, General Lee and uh, General Grant um, to basically kick the French out of Mexico because that was obviously a more important priority than finishing the Civil War. And then the idea was like, once the French were out of Mexico, we can then resume the Civil War, come to a negotiated settlement, whatever. But this was like a very serious idea. And the only, uh, I don't want to say the only reason it didn't happen, but one of the main reasons it didn't happen is simply Abraham Lincoln and Seward looked at the war and said, we are going to win this thing and then we'll deal with the French. And that's exactly what happened. But I think it sort of testifies to the point that you know, Americans in both the North and the South at that point just really realized that like what was happening as a result of the Civil War, um, it was sort of a vision of what the future could hold if the Monroe Doctrine wasn't enforced. And so that was the sort of crisis that really, I think, uh, sort of cemented the Monroe Doctrine in the public imagination. And for the next hundred years, it was just sort of the thing that Americans cared about. All right. So I want to ask whether that was a reasonable judgment or a crazy one that worked out well. Because the story that you tell is that we do all kinds of deranged things and the response to, you know, the Habsburg emperor of Mexico is not really one of them. Um, we'll come back to that. But we do all kinds of crazy things because somebody whispers boo that some European power is going to have an operation in Venezuela or in Haiti or in Cuba. And we tie ourselves in knots uh, occupying these countries, establishing customs unions for these countries, uh, customs uh, taking over their customs systems, um, all to avoid a European power getting a foothold. And yet, in the short term, the results of these are almost monotonously the same. That is, we we, we provoke revolutionary uh, uh, activity, uh, we destabilize countries we're trying to stabilize. And yet, in the longer term, by the end of the book, there is, in fact, hegemony in the Western Hemisphere, which, as you begin the book by saying, is, is an accomplishment that no other power has ever managed. And so I, I guess my question to you is, is the maniacal obsession with the Monroe Doctrine a folly that we lucked into a good outcome with, or is it a uh, a you know, actually, it was worth all of these little skirmishes in which 
we had to kick ass or sometimes get Marines asses kicked in order to uh, establish over uh, essentially a hundred years. Yeah. So uh, I guess I'll give two answers and, and maybe introduce a little bit of nuance into the question. I think there's no doubt that the Monroe Doctrine as declared was a phenomenally good idea and it was incredibly important to American security and power to have it. Um you know, the sort of dream of having a hemisphere where every other great power was eliminated was one that uh, I, I think was completely understandable just from a security perspective. I mean, you know, uh, international relations scholars have often said for a long time that achieving that kind of supremacy, that sort of regional hegemony really is makes you essentially invulnerable. And I think that's right. I think Americans understood that from way before even, you know, Latin America started gaining its independence. And the fact that we kind of steadfastly aimed at that objective and kept at it for essentially 150 years, I think testifies to some real foresight and sort of, um, at the very least, some some structural factors that made us understand the importance of that goal. Um, and as to whether the Monroe Doctrine was ever really threatened, I think the answer again is yes. And and it's it's hard to play it out because a number of these interventions that we were trying to preempt never really went anywhere. And so, uh, or they really were just figments of kind of American uh, imagination. Um, but uh, one of the ones that, uh, but but others weren't. There really were instances where Europe kind of was on the verge of intervening. I mean, the French example of Mexico is a great one, but Kaiser Wilhelm II, you know, in Germany, he never really got the opportunity, but Lord knows he was hungering after the Western Hemisphere and all his like private notes and all that. He was talking about how someday, you know, the day would come when Germany would descend. And and I think what's incredibly important to remember is the sort of counterfactual, which is what happened in the rest of the world during this period. And the answer is it's it's called the Second Age of Imperialism for a, for a reason. From 1870 to 1900, Germany, Great Britain, and France alone colonized nine million square miles, which is twice the size of Europe. Um, and by the time you get to World War One, uh, I, I think the statistic is something like 85 percent of the world's landmass is under the control of colonial powers, right? I mean, only 15% is still independent. And that 15% is more or less the Western Hemisphere, where not a single nation gets colonized, whereas in the rest of the world, uh, you can literally count on one hand the number of states outside of Europe that manage to maintain independence. And maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe it's a coincidence that the only region that's home to a jealous great power is able to kind of keep that region's independence. But I, I think the evidence is pretty strong that but for the presence of the United States, Latin America would have been carved up in that colonialist uh, binge just as much as the rest of the world. Now, the nuance here is that all that goes to sort of the overall goals of the Monroe Doctrine and whether it was actually threatened. The hard, hard question is whether the U.S. response to that, uh, and in particular, all the interventions and the way we executed the Monroe Doctrine was necessary. And to some extent, I don't have a great answer because it, uh, the, the answer really just depends on trade-offs, right, and, and probability assessments. And so if you're a U.S. policymaker and you're contemplating an intervention and you know that, let's say, there's a 5% chance that if you don't launch that intervention, a European power is going to come in, it's going to start a scramble for Latin America, and by the end of it, the U.S. is going to face existential threats on its borders – do you launch the intervention, right? It's only a 5% risk, but on the other hand, it's 5% that is borderline existential from a security perspective. How does the answer change if the risk is 30% or 1%? And, you know, these are the calculations American policymakers were making all the time, and they consistently favored intervention uh, where, there, where there was really any chance of a threat. And 
On the one hand, you can say, well, it was obvious that in the vast majority of these cases, nothing would have happened if we hadn't intervened. And I, I think that's right, but I don't think that actually answers the question, which is how do you weigh those probabilities and do you err on the side of intervening where you know, the costs can be tremendous to the to the nations that we are intervening in. But from the U.S. perspective, at least, they didn't seem that big at the time we were doing it. And so, you know, the costs were getting borne by someone else and American security was on the line. So ultimately, it doesn't really surprise me that the U.S. acted the way it did. All right. So let's go back to Mexico, which I think, uh, in addition to being just a bizarre story, casts a huge shadow over this period because it actually involved landing a 40,000-person continental army on American shores and installing a monarchy, uh, and not just any monarchy, but a Habsburg monarchy, which the is- The best kind, kind of, of monarchy. Yeah, well, it is actually the best kind of monarchy, but that's not the way our forefathers uh, in running this country sort of tended to think about it. Um, I love the Habsburgs, but I seem to be one of the few. Um, In fairness, I think Americans uh, didn't particularly love any monarchy. I'm not sure there was any good monarchies in their view. But there's something about a like 800 year old one that is, you know, kind of teetering on its last legs and gets installed. The Emperor Maximilian gets installed by, of all people, Napoleon III who is, of course, the anti-imperial emperor of France, who's, you know, seems to have forgotten that, you know, they're supposed to be the heirs of the French Revolution and have decided that they're the heirs of the Bourbons. Um, And he wants a stable government in Mexico, nipping at the butt of the United States. So he persuades a third-rate Habsburg in Brazil to become emperor. And not, not, not third-rate. This is the brother of Franz Josef. This was, uh, you know, the Archduke. Okay, so second-rate. Second-rate. <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't persuade one who actually had a throne. Yes. Um, and, um, and, of course, for those who uh, know Mexican history, this is really the... When, when Mexicans think about the, the liberation, they're thinking about um, uh, uh, this war more than the original liberation from Spain. This is the war that gives rise to, uh, to the, the, the great uh, leader uh, who's, um, who has actually has Maximilian executed, uh, who, whom you, you treat kind of glancingly, but uh, this is a, an event that looms really large in Mexican history. Um, from our point of view, it's kind of a comic episode, and yet it's not comic from the point of view of Abraham Lincoln or Ulysses S. Grant or uh, or Andrew Johnson or uh, most importantly Seward, who is Secretary of State at the time, Secretary of War at the time, um, and I had not realized what a long shadow it casts over the next eighty-five years of American foreign policy. So why is this such a big deal, and uh, how many Haitians and 
have died as a result of it. Now, I'm joking about the latter point, but but what is the consequence of the long tail of it? Yeah, well, so there's no doubt that at the time it was not seen as a comic episode by kind of Americans, uh, in part because in the throes of the Civil War, there was a real risk, um, you know, first that the North was going to lose, but but second, there was this constant kind of uh, brooding threat that one of the European great powers would intervene in the Civil War. Uh, and for anyone who's a kind of uh, Civil War history buff, that risk was a very real one, right? I mean, the Great Britain and France both uh, at various times contemplated it. Um, the French intervention in Mexico ended up sort of being an offshoot of that same threat. And one of the arguments that... Um, uh, that Mexican historians make is that but for the sort of Mexican Republican resistance to the French invasion, uh, the North would have lost the Civil War. And the argument goes something like this, which is that uh, the French landed troops in Mexico uh, in late 1861, early 1862, and they marched on the capital and thought they could take it quite easily. Uh and at the time, the French army was the best in the world. Uh, there was just no doubt. And, and France really sent some of their crack troops to for this particular expedition. But on May 5th, 1862, they get uh, rebuffed uh, uh, in Puebla. And, uh, of course, the uh, uh, that ends up becoming uh, um, Cinco de Mayo in the United States, which is oddly uh, celebrated more in the United States than Mexico, but it dates to this kind of battle where the Mexicans, uh, completely the underdogs from kind of really everyone's perspective, end up totally repelling the French. And as a result, the French expeditions knocked back on its heels, and it takes Napoleon III like a full year to send reinforcements and basically uh, eventually make his way into the Mexican uh, capital. Why do I mention this? Well, the reason is that uh, the uh, once the French take the capital, they then start spreading over the rest of the country. And eventually they reach the border with the United States and they actually carry out uh, quite an active trade with the Confederates in, in ways that, frankly, really support the Confederates in, in their war effort. But the Mexican historian argument is that but for the battle on Cinco de Mayo, the uh, French would have reached the border with the United States a year earlier in 1863. Uh, as opposed to 1864. And in 1864, it was obvious the Confederates were going to lose and uh, the French emperor didn't want to throw his support behind them. But in 1863, that was not the case. And there is a very, very good chance, and I think this is actually probably right, that if the French had linked up with the Confederates at the border in 1863, the French would have really sustained the Confederate insurgent or insurgency, insurrection, uh, war effort in ways that actually might have uh, eventually potentially even led to French intervention, but at minimum would have helped the Confederates last potentially uh, to the point where they they won the Civil War. Um, now, there's counter arguments here, and one of them is that Lincoln and Seward and all the rest of the cabinet completely understood that this was a real threat. And so Lincoln, during the war, was actually diverting troops down to the Rio Grande uh, and, and launching operations in Louisiana, Texas, and kind of down in the Deep South, even though his general said that there was no real purpose to it militarily. But he understood the sort of risk of the, the French linking up with the uh, Confederates. And so for him, this was sort of a no-brainer that you had to sort of prioritize the, the bigger strategy over the, um, uh, over the kind of the, the specific, uh, you know, military battles being fought in Virginia and elsewhere. Um, anyway, that's a real dive into the weeds of kind of this particular uh, intervention. But it, it, there was a real like scarring effect, I think, on Americans that they sort of understood how close of a call it had been. And we can look at the intervention in retrospect and say, well, Napoleon III was never really going to get anywhere. Um, 
for reasons that I think are probably true. I mean, Mex Mexican nationalism was really activated. Uh, it would have been very, very hard for the empire to really sustain itself over the long term. And of course, Napoleon III was dealing with Germany uh, rising next door and, uh, you know, eventually ended up losing the Franco-Prussian War and, you know, getting kicked off the throne as a result. So there's all sorts of reasons why you can sort of say in the long run, this intervention wouldn't have panned out. But again, from the perspective of Americans, it really wasn't that obvious at the time. And so it ends up having this this kind of, as you said, this hold on 85 years of American uh, foreign policy. And again, something I didn't mention in the book, but I love bringing out because uh, 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 talks like this allow me to. Um, FDR was obsessed with Maximilian in France, uh, uh, or uh, sorry, Maximilian in Mexico, which was the Habsburg emperor. And in a large part of his private correspondence, he was basically worried about the Nazis doing the exact same thing that the French had done. And so um, I forget which speech it is. It might be the Arsenal of Democracy speech or the Four Freedoms or one of his big speeches. He actually talks about how the Nazi threat is not a threat of the Nazis invading you know, the East Coast or anything like that. Instead, he says what they'll do is they'll try and establish a foothold like the, like Maximilian in Mexico. Um and, you know, as I said, in his private correspondence, he said the same thing to reporters, to his cabinet. This was just sort of a defining thing that sort of uh, really kind of shaped his worldview. I mean, I got to say, I like a lot of the attitudes that politicians express in in this book are, you know, quite foreign to me as a reader. Um particularly their very deep, sometimes racial, sometimes not contempt for Latin American culture, um, and their total lack of understanding of the countries in which they're dealing. This aspect strikes me as completely reasonable. There was a French army on the southern border of the United States. We talk about invasion when we're talking about migration of, you know, of, you know, would-be asylees across that border, there was actually a, you know, a French army that made it to that border. I would think, like, I, it amazes me that that's not more of a, you know, that that doesn't have kind of more hold on our memory and imagination today than it does. And I totally get why, why. Roosevelt was, you know, fixated on it, especially because, and I don't want to jump too out of order here, especially because, you know, according to your quoting of them, uh, the Kaiser was actually himself kind of obsessed with this idea. And the this idea that, you know, we've carved up Africa, there's nowhere else to go. Um, so Latin America is, you know, Brazil looks nice, kind of. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, and um, uh, for for Kaiser Wilhelm, I mean, Germany in part was a latecomer to the, you know, to the game of empire, to the colonial uh, game. Uh, you know, Germany didn't really consolidate its rise until the 1870s, 1880s. And so by the time it starts looking abroad, I mean, it snags a few colonies here and there, but there's this sort of palpable sense among German leaders uh, that they're late and that they need to catch up to the French and uh, the British empires. Uh, and you actually have German officers saying, you know, basically the entire world has been carved up other than China and Latin America. And, you know, China, very quickly, Germany establishes a foothold in, in China. And it's clear that uh, uh, 
German naval officers are very interested in doing the same thing in, in Latin America. Part of the problem for Germany, of course, is that as much as it would be nice to set up a colony in Latin America, Germany has much bigger problems at home. Uh, and it's constantly worried about the French, constantly worried about the Russians, the British. Um, and, you know, Americans understood this. Uh, they weren't stupid. They got the fact that there was a balance of power in Europe and that that would constrain uh, kind of German ambitions. Um but there was always the chance that, you know, the balance of power would shift in a way that gave Germany an opening to kind of go uh, across the ocean and try and do something much in the same way that Maximilian had, uh, you know, a couple decades earlier, or sorry, as, uh, Emperor III had with Maximilian a couple days, decades earlier. And so it, it's hard to say because it never panned out. So it really does seem like one of these, you know, kind of uh, pie in the sky dreams that maybe Americans shouldn't have taken seriously. But I think that's just sort of a, a by nature, by, by virtue of the way that events shook out, but it doesn't change the fact that I think the risk was in, in some sense very real. All right. So we have a question from Ev, uh, uh, which actually dovetails nicely with a question I was contemplating anyway. So Ev, go ahead and I may elaborate on it. But you got to unmute yourself. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, I was actually wondering if um, you consider the success of the Monroe Doctrine to be an, an accomplishment or more like a necessary evil. Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, I don't know that I can give an answer that really is anything other than sort of my personal opinion. But the I, I guess to define terms, I would say the, the success of the Monroe Doctrine was uh, effectively expelling and kicking out every other great power from the Western Hemisphere. And what that allowed the United States to do was to venture abroad in a way that other powers uh, in history have not been able to. So, um you know, we we as Americans, I think, sort of take it for granted that we have bases across the rest of the world uh, and that, you know, we can send our military wherever. And we, we it never really, I think, occurs to most Americans that most powers can't do that. Right. I mean, China doesn't have the option to take, uh, you know, 300,000 uh, troops and send it, you know, halfway across the world because it's worried about, you know, force levels with Russia or with India or even, you know, with Vietnam. And for the United States to sort of have that unfettered ability to go anywhere and do anything without having to worry about uh, any enemy at its gates is is freeing and has allowed the United States to do a number of things that um, otherwise wouldn't have been possible. And so some of the obvious examples are just the way we fought World War II abroad uh, and for the most part not on foreign uh, or for the most part not on American soil. Um but one of the examples I sort of uh tease at in the book is the Cold War itself. Um our strategy during the Cold War was containment. We are containing the Soviet Union uh, largely to Eastern Europe and sort of Northern Asia, um, and to a lesser extent, sort of, you know, uh, skirmishing with it in Africa and other places in the world. Um, I think the question that's not often asked is why were we containing the Soviet Union as opposed to the Soviet Union containing the United States? Uh, and the sort of obvious answer is, well, because we had this sort of hegemony in the region and we could go abroad, station all our troops right at the Soviet Union's borders, or at least right at the Warsaw Pact's borders, in a way that the Russians really couldn't do in, uh, in, in reverse. And when they tried it, for instance, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, Americans reacted extremely violently and extremely forcefully in ways that 
frankly, from the Russian perspective, was probably hard to understand, right? I mean, we completely blew our lid at the Russians installing uh, nuclear tip missiles in Cuba. But of course, from the Russian perspective, we had tons of nuclear missiles in Europe pointed right at Russia, right? And so there's this sort of sense that the U.S. has been able to maintain this double standard in the way it approaches the world and the way it uh, treats other great powers and what it expects of them, in large part because of this hegemony we have at home. And so, you know, on the whole, I would say that American involvement in in, in the Cold War and in World War II and in other places has been good for the world. Um, I mentioned before that I think, but for the Monroe Doctrine, there's a very good chance Latin America would have been colonized, uh, you know, from 1870 to 1914. All of that, I think, is good and I think probably outweighs the bad. But it's very hard to sort of normatively weigh these things because there's no doubt that the consequences of American interventionism, uh, American interventionism, uh, both in Latin America during this period and elsewhere in the world later, including in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, it had serious consequences. And so, um, you know, how you weigh all that is, I think, a very kind of individualized judgment. All right. So I want to go back to the strategic logic of the U.S. position, which is always framed in defensive terms. And you seem to accept that framing, that you know, we have no ambitions on the territory of any of these countries. Um, we merely want to prevent Great Britain from getting a foothold or the Kaiser from getting a foothold or Hitler or Napoleon III. Um, and it's all about, a, it's not an imperial ambition on our part, notwithstanding the occasional annexation of the Philippines or Puerto Rico. Um, it's really a, um, the broad stream is really a kind of defensive mania that causes you to react like an imperialist to any sign of imperialism. And I'm reminded of this by something that you don't mention in the book, which is that Rome in building an empire had a very similar ethos, right? That it never started a war and it would do all kinds of things to get somebody else to throw the first rock or lie about it and claim that somebody else had thrown the first rock. But it always had a highly legalistic formulation of how its wars were defensive, even when they were clearly not. And so my question is, was this an example of the United States establishing imperial hegemony in a fashion that any of these imperial powers would simply recognize as such and deluding itself that it was you know, acting from uh, benevolent and defensive motives, or is this um, a, or is the trick that it was actually totally sincere and they were kind of backed into imperialism by their own defense and opposition to imperialism, and it's kind of a, 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 one of the ironies of the era that that the Monroe Doctrine was just as sincere as people, you know, as Teddy Roosevelt thought it was. So it's a great question. Uh, I think I'm going to generalize because, again, we're looking at 100 years of history. There were many interventionisms, uh, or many interventions. 
I tried to be candid in the book about which ones I thought were motivated by, you know, more than sort of defensive uh, intentions. And so in the Spanish-American War, there's no doubt there was uh, part of the logic I described did apply to the Spanish-American War, but the war itself was not started primarily for sort of benign defensive reasons. Um, and, you know, that's also true of other interventions like the taking of Panama, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, famous uh, um not annexation of Panama, but at least uh, involvement in the revolution that separated Panama from Colombia. So with the caveat that there are exceptions, I do think on the whole, it is this sort of genuine commitment to this uh, to this kind of defensive ethos that nevertheless, ironically, sort of led to exactly the thing that the United States was trying to prevent against. And I think teasing apart kind of how genuine it was it's hard to do but i'll point at a few pieces of evidence that convinced me at least one is the fact that these leaders uh were genuinely uh opposed to intervention uh and that almost all of the violent interventions that the u.s was um, launching the leaders who launched them at the time were just like beside themselves about how upset they were to launch them and that includes everyone from woodrow wilson who of course is like famously, you know, uh, pro self-determination to people like Teddy Roosevelt, who who were not that way, have this reputation as being kind of the rough riding imperialist. But when it came time to occupy Cuba in 1906, it is hard to overstate how upset he was about that idea. I mean, um, to the uh, and, and it's not, you know, again, I don't trust public speeches of presidents when they say, well, oh, we were forced into this, you know, I mean, that's one thing. And I think that's appropriate. But the private correspondence is. A yeah, the private thing. correspondence, including like to your son or to your, you know, you're writing in your diary. And it's possible that some of this was written, you know, with kind of history in mind. Um, but I think it's just too consistent across too long to really say that it's not genuine. Uh, second, the sometimes in, in uh, I've been in my head sort of thinking that I might eventually write an article that sort of details all the examples, but it is hard to overstate the number of opportunities for expansion in the region that the United States passed up. There were countless, countless times where a nation like Nicaragua would go to the United States and say, please, 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 we'd like to have a protectorate, like, please come annex us, like, please, you know, and the United States over and over again said no to these uh, opportunities for expansion. Uh, and, and these opportunities came by way more often than any of the actual interventions the United States ended up launching. And so if you think that the United States is sort of bent on establishing this kind of hegemony over its neighbors, you would think it would take advantage of these opportunities, particularly when they're kind of freely offered. And yet Not the to mention States- manufacture some with respect to Canada. Right. Right, exactly. Well, the United States kind of did do that, but Canada is its own kind of, you know. Well, but but, I mean, it it did it in 1812, but it never tried to do it again. Yeah. And 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 a pure imperialist power would look next door to the undefended border north before it did anything else, I would think. Yeah. And not least because of racism, candidly. I mean, part of the American reluctance to go into the region was there was a deep seated uh, sense of racism among essentially all the American policymakers during this period. And so they really wanted nothing to do with Latin Americans in part because they thought they were inferior. And so Canada, in some ways, is actually a great example because the United States did not feel that way about Canadians. They were seen as sort of, uh, you know, whites that could be annexed into the union. No problem in a way that really distinguished Canada, actually, from the rest of the hemisphere. Um, and so, so that I, I think was also kind of part of the story. The the other, I guess, final point I'll mention is that 
you know, the argument that I make is that the causal sort of mechanism for America and acting aggressively was its fear of great power competition, its fear of great powers coming into the region. When that fear died uh, at the end of World War One, where it just became abundantly clear that the United States uh, was secure in its hemisphere and had achieved regional hegemony, um, the United States sort of the wave of interventionism ended as well. Uh, you had increasing uh, domestic criticism of interventionism in the United States. You had increasing criticism abroad, and there's no doubt that there were interventions in in the eight, or 1920s. But you can actually see sort of as they start to decline, as they start to become less and less invasive, and as the U.S. just starts to gradually pull back all of its forces from the region, and so. And one of the points I make in the book is it's really hard to find examples of powers that consciously deconstruct their sphere of influence um, and do so over many different administrations and many different presidents. Uh, this wasn't like a partisan thing. It ended up being kind of, you know, the highs of interventionism were reached by both uh, Democrats and Republicans as, as were the lows. And so I think all those factors, to my mind, at least sort of support the fact that this really was sort of a genuine defensive motivation for the United States even if it really led to some quite aggressive and quite offensive behavior. All right. So before we, uh, uh, we have a bunch of audience questions uh, that I want to go to, but I want to ask about some of the, uh, some of, some of these interventions um, in my, again, sort of high school experience, high school history experience. I learned about the United Fruit Company and Banana Republics and, uh, I did not learn about uh, the awesomely named Smedley Butler, um, who strikes me as uh, a guy who is just begging for a biography uh, if he doesn't already have one. Uh, tell us about Smedley Butler and or I, maybe I should say Major General Smedley Butler and the... Um, and the dark side of these interventions, how many were there and how ugly they got? Yeah, so um, Major General Smedley Darlington Butler uh, is one of those heroes. Oh, I forgot about the Darlington. It makes yeah, it, it so all, much better. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal name. He, he was born, uh, I'm trying to remember now, he was slightly underage when the Spanish-American War started. So I guess that would put him as being born in the 1880s. He was a Quaker, uh, so in theory uh, did not use violence. Um, but he ended up being at the kind of tip of the interventionist's uh, spear, starting when he enrolled, uh, enlisted in the Marines during the Spanish-American War. He ends up fighting there. He ends up fighting in uh, the Philippines uh, during the Philippine-American War. Um he then goes to China during the Boxer Rebellion, and then he comes back and he's involved in Panama, in uh, uh, in Mexico, in Nicaragua, uh, Honduras, just about every single intervention, he's, he's there. And he's a fascinating character because he, on the one hand, he's an enormously effective, bold, creative soldier. And over and over again, the United States is launching these interventions with sometimes only dozens of Marines against hundreds, if not thousands of sort of... Um, you know, uh, native soldiers who are oftentimes shooting at them. And nevertheless, the United States ends up prevailing in almost all of these encounters. And and part of that is it's people like Butler who really just with a sense of boldness that is almost like unimaginable, just sort of bluff their way through every situation. And there's these just like hilarious and fascinating stories as he sort of, you know, finds himself uh, dealing with, uh, you know, with these, um, you know, with these revolutions and civil wars that he gets involved in. But he ends up being a... Um, kind of an iconic character because 
during the 1930s, he sort of has a change of heart where he basically concludes that everything he had done, he had done at the behest of kind of the big businesses, and in particular, the Wall Street banks and the banana companies, United Fruit basically being the big one. And he ends up going from be, being, you know, this, the kind of the Marines Marine to sort of being a, a pacifist who who joins the uh, kind of America first isolationist side of the debate in the United States as being adamantly against any war because all war is, uh, to quote his famous work, a racket. And it's this kind of incredible turnaround. And it had a lot of credibility because by that point, he, you know, had two stars on his shoulders. He had two uh, medals of honors uh, around his neck. And so he ends up for many generations since all the way up to the current day, kind of representing the sort of economically minded explanation for American imperialism. Um, in my view, uh, General Butler, uh, he sort of came into these interventions with this mindset that it was all sort of Americans trying to preserve economic interests. And he ended up only uh it, but he never really had evidence for that, right? I mean, he was the man on the ground and he was the one who was sent into uh, to situations, but he wasn't the one sitting in the White House making the decision to intervene or not. And so he ends up having a lot of credibility just by virtue of his background. But I think ultimately his explanations don't really kind of hold up uh, given that, you know, he wasn't the one making the decisions and doesn't really know much about them. All right, Paul, uh, you have the next question. Please unmute yourself. I look forward to reading your book. I was wondering if FDR is a good labor policy in any way influenced by it. We are we are having a lot of trouble hearing you. At least I am. Um, uh, why don't I read your question uh, as you've articulated it in the uh, question in the Q and A? Was FDR's good neighbor policy toward Latin America influenced by his fascination with Mexico and the Habsburgs? Sorry about that, Paul. We just we just couldn't hear you. Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, I mentioned earlier that starting in the 1920s, the U.S. starts dismantling its sphere of influence. Uh, that effort really culminates with what's called the good neighbor policy under FDR, where FDR basically... Um, really just unwinds the tape all the way back to kind of mid uh, 19th century and says the U.S. will no longer intervene or even interfere in the domestic politics of its neighbors, which given the U.S. record by this point is really sort of an astonishing statement. But uh, for a while, uh, FDR really sort of lives up to it. Um, I'm not I don't think there's a lot to suggest, or at least I can't recall anything, that that policy itself had any roots in the uh, French interlude in Mexico. Um, instead, it was mostly based on the fact that Democrats were trying to capitalize on Republican interventionism, uh, Republicans' interventions, and in particular, the the um, Coolidge ends up being involved in this intervention in Nicaragua in 1927, which leads to this insurgency by a guy named Sandino, whose name might be familiar because that's where the later Sandinistas took their name from. Anyway, from the domestic U.S. perspective, this interventionism, this intervention is a disaster, much like all its predecessors. And, you know, the Democrats, of course, are very quick to sort of make hay out of it. Um, the Fascination with Maximilian, I think, ends up actually affecting FDR more in the second half of his administration when he starts worrying about the Nazi threat to the region. And it's that point that the sort of French invasion of Mexico starts to really kind of grip his mind. And it 
coincidentally, or, or not coincidentally, I should say, that's when the good neighbor policy starts to slip. And where with the new sort of great power threat on the horizon, FDR once again starts to intervene uh, in his neighbors in ways that he had previously promised he wouldn't. All right. Uh, Richard, you have the next question. But you okay. I hope I'm not breaking up. Not um, at all. You sound great. Good to hear your voice. Okay. Oh, nice, nice to see you. Um, so, uh, Sean, you spoke about uh, examining the U.S. as a case study to shed light on the situation that we may be witnessing today with China. And so I'm just curious um, about what uh, about some specifics, like uh, what sort of present day Chinese interests uh, do you think parallel those of the U.S. in the period that you examined and how much is driven by national security concerns, how much by uh, uncertainty, for example, of what's going to happen in the U.S. political system in the next uh, uh, decade or so, uh, how much it just has to do with things like control of natural resources, and uh, why didn't this begin to happen during the regime of uh, Mao Zedong, for example? Yeah, so um, so there's a lot there. I'll start, I guess, by saying that um, I think it's fairly clear that the Chinese are attempting to do the same thing in East Asia that we did in the Western Hemisphere, which is to say, to secure regional hegemony by essentially expelling or neutralizing all the other great powers. Um, from the Chinese perspective, that is primarily uh, uh, an objective that's focused on the United States. Um, I think the ultimate dream of any Chinese security analyst is essentially to expel the United States from East Asia, at least as a military presence. And once you sort of see Chinese foreign policy from that perspective, I think there ends up being kind of these remarkable parallels with the United States and its history. And so just to start, you know, we had the Monroe Doctrine. Um, President uh, Xi Jinping in, uh, I believe, tw uh, 2014, in a speech, basically, uh, and I'm forgetting the exact language, but said something to the effect of, you know, the problems of Asia should be solved by the uh, people of Asia. And it was this whole speech just about how, like, Asia is essentially for Asians, which is, of course, a sort of uh, uh, practically rhymes with the America for the Americans, which was the sort of unofficial slogan for the Monroe Doctrine. Um, and, you know, from the Chinese perspective, I think there's other kind of parallels as well. Uh, the United States was obsessed with the great power threat. Uh, it was obsessed with the threat of kind of an expansion of European influence in a way that would lead it to become encircled. Um, the Chinese, I think, feel the exact same way about American uh, expansion and influence. Um, if you read Chinese military writings, the way they talk about the United States is that it's trying to essentially contain China to put together this coalition, and it's doing that by expanding its influence and its neighbors. And so there are real, I think, um, kind of structural parallels there. And of course, it's not surprising that this leads to sort of similar policies. Um, the Chinese have not yet intervened militarily in the same way that the United States did. But they're practicing a large number of the same other policies, ranging from kind of diplomacy that's centered around their economic, um, uh, the use of their currency and sort of uh, trying to use loans, for example, to exert political influence. Um, there's other parallels to the way that they're expanding their navy, their bases. Um, but it's 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 sort of a similar kind of playbook that they're adopting from the United States. Um and I, I think that's not a coincidence, frankly, although 
for at, at the same time, you know, and to your question, there's so many factors, of course, that distinguish the two cases, right? I mean, without even talking about like factors unique to China, there's the fact that, you know, we have nuclear weapons now, the trade ties between the two powers are are obviously much stronger than the United States' trade ties with Europe. Um, and so there are reasons to think that the situations might be different. I, you know, I don't deny that in the book, but I think there's sort of what the what I hope the book does is it gives people who give China the benefit of the doubt. I hope it helps them understand that even nations with genuinely held sort of Pacific values and, and interests can nevertheless end up in situations where they feel compelled to use force to protect their interests. Um, and that might not be like an especially profound point uh, for many people, but but it sort of does mean that there's no, I, I don't think a solution to the rise of China is to just to hope that China ends up having a peaceful rise in the way that they always promise. Even if they genuinely mean that, I just don't think that that's, that's frankly enough. Um, finally, you asked about Mao. Um, I think the answer is a little bit complicated, but by that point, I think the Chinese had not really consolidated kind of internal control to the point where they were really confident in kind of projecting power externally. And, and frankly, I'm not sure they even had this sort of material base of power to do that. Um, I think it really only took the three decades of kind of De uh, Deng Xiaoping's reforms and the sort of economic rise of China where they got to a position where they could credibly think to themselves, all right, this is our moment. We can sort of attain this. Yeah, so I want to focus a little bit on some of the differences. Uh, it, you know, you close with a discussion of China in in the conclusion of the book, and I look at it and I say I can totally see why a kind of late nineteenth century U.S. type of thinking is explains a lot of what they are doing, but I'm. I have trouble seeing them successful in this regard for the following reasons. We were surrounded by dysfunctional states that we were trying to shore up by way of keeping European powers out. They are surrounded by highly functional states like Japan, you know, in incredibly militarily success. Uh, uh, economically successful uh, states that produce incredibly, you know, high uh, 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 per capita uh, output. You know, even the less functional states are, you know, there aren't a lot of, of Hades uh, in that neighborhood. You're talking about South Korea, you're talking about China, uh, Japan, you know, you're talking about Vietnam, which they have uh, ha is increasingly emerging as a manufacturing competitor to them. And these highly, highly functional states actually want other powers, including other military powers, specifically the United States in the region. And that strikes me as a, you know, sort of even on the terms, if if we had had if Haiti had been Japan and it had wanted the Royal Navy in as a counterbalance to us, the 19th century would have looked pretty different, I think. And so my question is, to the extent that they're thinking about it in the language of the Monroe Doctrine or some Asian equivalent of it, are they kidding themselves? 
Yeah, or, I think it's or or are we, you know, sitting here fat and happy like Napoleon the Third, thinking, you know, all oh, those those goofballs will never amount to anything. Yeah, I, I I think I tend to be on the more optimistic side, at least sort of from the American perspective. I do think there's major structural differences in the situations that China faces now and the United States faced then. Um, and one of the biggest is just the neighborhood, right? As you mentioned, I mean, the thing that really defined the United States' rise is that in its entire neighborhood, there was no other great power that was uh, sort of based there, right? I mean, the, the European great powers had colonies in the Western Hemisphere. But so from the U.S. perspective, all it had to do was sort of eliminate those colonies and that influence one by one. But it never really had to fight any of its neighbors to get to that same level of control. Whereas China finds itself in a situation where it either, if it wants regional hegemony, it has to either outgrow its neighbors so much that it becomes so preponderant that they're just no longer great powers vis-a-vis it, or it has to fight them and, and essentially, you know, beat them in a in a war. Um, and both of those, you know, at least in the short term, seem very unrealistic. Uh, and so one of the biggest assets I think the United States does have in its competition with China is its neighbors. Um, and so I do think from that perspective, it is highly unlikely that the Chinese will attain regional hegemony at any point, let's say, in the next couple of decades. Um that said, I do think that the Chinese can still sort of pursue the more modest goal of sort of eliminating the American security umbrella. And I think the objective, the the hope on the part of the Chinese, I suspect, is that once the American security umbrella is gone, or or even once American credibility uh, to its allies is gone, um, that you're going to see a lot more behavior in the region of nearby powers saying, you know what, we're not going to fight China. We're going to sort of side with it rather than continuing to oppose it. And so I think that's the hope. I I tend to be optimistic uh, in the way, for all the reasons you mentioned, that China is going to have a real problem with that. But I suspect that that's the way that they're primarily thinking about this uh, at this point. Um, if I can add one small thing, you mentioned Haiti calling in the Royal Navy. So it never quite happened like that. But one of the kind of, I think, fascinating what ifs in history is what would have happened if Europe had not descended into World War One. And the reason I say that is because by that point, the kind of wave of American interventionism in Latin America had really kind of reached its peak. And many Latin Americans, for all the obvious and understandable reasons, were quite fed up with being invaded. And they had started to look abroad to Europe for help, for protection against the United States. And so, uh, in the in the category of another thing that people may recall from U.S. history class in high school, uh, there's the Zimmerman telegram, which is this telegram that the foreign secretary of Germany sent to uh, the Mexican uh, president, I believe, uh, basically offering a military alliance against the United States uh, in exchange for, I guess, uh, material support and the Mexican opportunity to reconquer parts of the Southwest. Um and again, it sounds kind of from comic from, you know, 100 years later. It but... actually sounds like, you know, like something out of a James Bond movie. And it was. You know? I mean, actually, the, the the story of how we the British intercepted the telegram uh, and, you know, decoded it in kind of one of the great uh, feats of spycraft. And uh, then the we... Germans confirmed its authenticity, which, yeah, which seemed really... like all they really needed to do. No one would have believed it if yes. they just said it's not real. 
Yes. It, no, exactly. And in part, the Germans just didn't know how the British had gotten it or how we had gotten it. And so they were worried that by denying it, they would then end up being basically called out. But the, the truth is the British didn't tell us this at the time, but they had tapped our cables. And so they were actually spying on us. And the Germans actually used American cables to send this message to Mexico because all the German cables had been cut by the Royal Navy. Uh, and so they coded this message and the U.S. Wilson, out of all his kind of uh, generosity had offered Germany to use American cables when it wanted to send stuff to Latin America. And so the Germans were like, sure, we will use your generosity to send this message of like essentially war uh, to Mexico. Um, anyway, and, and you know, the, the U.S. probably would have entered World War One regardless, but the Zimmerman telegram certainly pushed Wilson to accelerate the date that we entered World War One. I. I mean, it really was in his speech to Congress explaining why he why we were going to war, very short speech, but the Zimmerman telegram makes an appearance. It was just that important in his calculations. Um, and for anyone who knows the history of World War One, I, I mean, the 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 date we entered was critical. If we had entered, you know, a couple months later, the war might have turned out very differently. So Matteo, the floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. Uh, thanks. This has been a really, really uh, interesting talk. I was wondering if you might be able to speak a little bit more uh, towards the about the time exactly when and the process uh, by which the Monroe Doctrine stopped being regarded in the sort of uh, reverential way you talked about earlier, where it was uh, the Constitution, God, and the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, Though it certainly seems to be the case that the influence of the of the doctrine um, outlived it being spoken of in that way, I think I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on when and why it stopped being regarded that way so explicitly. Yeah, so I'll, I'll focus on two factors, but first I'm going to fight the premise of the question uh, by pointing out that. Uh, uh, Ron DeSantis, the day, the night he declared his candidacy for the presidency, he went on Fox News. And in that interview, he said, we need a new Monroe Doctrine. And anyone who's read Vivek's uh, uh, foreign policy platform, uh, such as it is, uh, knows that he has basically centered it around the Monroe Doctrine. So uh, people like to say that the Monroe Doctrine is dead. I think Secretary Kerry in 2014 said that explicitly. Uh, But uh, uh, I think rumors of its death have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, It's one of those doctrines that is always, I think, going to have a purchase on the American mind because it sort of represents the isolationist leanings of the United States. This idea of like, why do we care what happens in Asia or Europe or Africa? This just simply isn't our problem. And I think that's always going to be in some ways an attractive foreign policy uh, platform. And so um, from that perspective, I think, I think there's still some, some vitality in it. Um, But, uh, but to answer your question, so I think two things ended up happening. One was that the Monroe Doctrine had fallen into real disrepute among our neighbors by, as I mentioned, the 1910s, but it really started to register with Americans by the 1920s and the 1930s. And so FDR's good neighbor policy was a way of basically moving past the Monroe Doctrine. And once we got into the Cold War, it just sort of, I think, became obvious to a lot of American policymakers that using the phrase the Monroe Doctrine was not a good way to win credit uh, among Latin American allies or enemies um, in the region. And so it just sort of uh, uh, rhetorically started falling out of the the kind of vocabulary of American statesmen. But the other factor was that the Cold War itself, I mean, just sort of fundamentally changed 
American foreign policy. I, I think up until the start of the Cold War, the United States had always really just cared about the Western Hemisphere first and foremost. But starting in about 1950, Europe ends up becoming the most important region in the world to American security, because if the Soviets can kind of control the Eurasian continent, then they can become a regional hegemon of their own, and that will create real problems for the United States. And so you start having this kind of global battle over, uh, you know, uh, over communism and, and freedom and democracy that, you know, the Cold War we all know and love, the Twilight Struggle. Um and in that context, that sort of Eurocentric kind of vision of the world, I think the modern doctrine started to seem a little bit obsolete and a little bit antiquated. Um, and I think in part it was buried quite purposefully by by internationalist statesmen who wanted Americans to sort of shake off their tendency to only care about the hemisphere and to sort of commit to NATO and commit to the sort of uh, American presence in Europe and the, and the the broader goals of kind of global containment. Um but one thing I, I note in the book is that there's this moment, I think, in, gosh, uh, 1970, 1980, somewhere in that decade, where um, there's a young senator from Delaware named Joe Biden, and he's uh, questioning Henry Kissinger on some activities that the um, United States is doing in, in Africa. And Kissinger basically describes containment uh, in a way that leads uh, Senator Biden to say, you're describing a global Monroe Doctrine. And the point I make in the book is that I, th I think that's exactly right. I mean, containment, you know, stepping back, the Monroe Doctrine is oftentimes put in terms of being a prohibition on Europe doing things in uh, the Western Hemisphere. But the kind of flip side of the coin is you can also look at the Monroe Doctrine as basically being containing Europe in the old world, right? I mean, it's all it's all the same thing. And so the the point I make in the book is that containment itself Yes, it was a way of containing the Soviet Union kind of in the states it already had purchased, but it also was a way of essentially saying, you know, we are moving the Monroe Doctrine from the Atlantic Ocean right up to the borders of the Warsaw Pact. Um, and so I think a large part of kind of American foreign policy during the Cold War ends up really echoing some of the things we are doing, you know, uh, in the run up to it. Yeah, so I want to end with sort of the question with which we began and we were we were talking a little bit about this before we started, so I'm going to frame this in as provocative a way as I can. I can read your book in one of two ways. One is an endless parade of goofball interventions that would be funny if they didn't have such nasty consequences for the for the local peoples in question. Uh, we helped immiserate uh, not a large number of countries, but not a small number of countries. Sometimes over and over and over again, we deluded ourselves that we were creating stability uh, when we were generating the instability that we then had to go in and respond to again. Um, we, we did it uh, with uh, maybe for all the best reasons, but that was, you know, of very cold comfort to the people uh, who uh, whose development uh, nationally we stunted as a result. And in some cases, particularly Haiti, um, uh, we definitely contributed to a 200-year tradition of you know, great powers uh, uh, helping uh, Haitians keep that country uh, uh, as 
poor and as unstable as humanly possible. And so you look at this and you say, you know, you've basically cataloged a history of folly um, uh, that we've kind of grown out of, but then as you describe, kind of grown out of by exporting to the rest of the world. And we used to do it in Haiti and and um and uh and the Dominican Republic and Nicaragua and now we do it in Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam and uh and elsewhere. And the total number of successes is very small and the total number of uh disasters is not very small. Um, and so, you know, you can dress it up as grand strategy, but what it really is, is, is uh, reckless goofiness um, that, and, and that doesn't learn from its own mistakes. It just repackages them uh, over decades and generations. Uh, the other way I can tell the same story is um you know there is a strategic goal from the beginning and it is to uh keep european powers out of the united states out of the region and away from the united states this goal was accomplished in a systematic bipartisan fashion over a long period of time that has allowed the United States to project force all over the place. Um, it has allowed most of the countries in question, including, you know, particularly Mexico, to prosper. Uh, uh, Mexico has a higher per capita GDP than Russia these days. Um, uh, you know, some countries in the region have done extremely well. Um, some have not. Uh, there have certainly been eggs broken to create the omelet, but the omelet has served a lot of people all over the world and not just in the United States. And so I'm and so that we shouldn't be too worried about the Iraqs and the Afghanistans, because, you know, I'm going to state this really provocatively because, you know, U.S. intervention fails 100% of the time and yet succeeds in the broad sweep of things. And so I'm curious, and your book is so, it's so narratively driven and, um, and you actually don't answer the question of which story you're telling, which is one of the things I love. And so I want to, like, what percentage of this as you walk away from this project is the story of folly and malicious folly um, or at least reckless folly. And what percentage of it is the story of, you know, a hundred plus years of getting to something that no other country in the history of the world has ever accomplished for the benefit of a very large number of people. Yeah, I mean, so uh, you said the question was sort of returning to where we started. So I'll give the answer that I gave when we started, which is why not both? Um, I I do think that both kind of interpretations are in some sense correct. Um, 
And, and one of the things that I try to do in the book, um, and part of the reason I like history and part of the reason I like foreign policy is that in today's sort of hyper-polarized age, it's easier in those subject areas to tell what I think is, what I hope is a more subtle and nuanced story. Um, and so when it comes to this this topic, I mean, first, there's, I, I think you put it really well in terms of the sort of consequences our interventionism had for our neighbors. Um, I the, This book is not primarily sort of a, a balance sheet of the pluses and minuses of American intervention from the perspective of Latin Americans. Um, but, I, but I think it'd be hard to do any honest accounting that does not sort of end up with with us very much in the red uh, in terms of kind of what we did for the region, at least in the countries we were intervening in. Um, and so, and part of that was, uh, I think, you know, perhaps an unavoidable result of the way we structured our foreign policy and the goals we had and the means we chose to pursue them. In other ways, it was, I think, you know, it, folly, I think is a good word. Recklessness is a good word where, you know, we were trying to nation build in nations we knew nothing about. It was sort of a, from from start to finish, there were just mistakes made in, in kind of catastrophic ways. Um, and so none of that is, you know, I, I don't think there's any denying that. Um, and to the point you made, you know, whatever our motivations for those interventions may have been, it doesn't change the fact that they were felt the same way by the, the people who experienced them. Um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, after he left office, he goes on this uh, famous journey in South America, uh, the river <clears throat> out, or he's uh, exploring this river. And at some point, um, they encounter, uh, indirectly encounter uh, local um, Indians in, in the Amazonian jungle. And uh, I think they shoot poison darts at their dog and, and kill him. And they were talking about how, uh, and Teddy later was giving a speech in front of a, an audience. And he said, you know, uh, we were very worried that they, you know, would shoot us. And in retrospect, they were probably just scared of us, you know, that we were sort of intruding into their land and sort of tramping about. And, you know, they didn't know who we were. But it turns out that getting shot because someone's scared of you is very similar to getting shot because someone's, you know, affirmatively hunting for you. And so I, that quote always sort of stuck with me because I think it kind of well describes uh, the way that the U.S. approached the region. You know, my book is very much not meant to be sort of an exoneration of what the United States did because, as I said, there's no sort of denying the actual facts of what we did, whatever the motivation might have been. Um, at the same time, I do think that our our uh, foreign policy was kind of consistently driven by an overarching goal. And so even if at any level, at any moment, there were particular you know, mistakes made or kind of individual personality quirks or things that entered into the picture, there is a very clear through line that I think... Um, as I mentioned earlier, both was a completely logical and, and in many ways a completely, um, I don't want to say correct, but it was completely understandable, at least from the United States perspective, what it was doing and why it was pursuing it. And I think it was sort of well done from that perspective. Um, I'm not sure I would go so far as to say that that's true of American foreign policy to this day. I mean, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, whatever else one might say in defense of them, they seem more they seem like more wars of choice and less sort of driven by the overarching security concerns that were driving the united states um in 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 the period i study in the book so you know it, it sort of i guess i'm not sure i would i would extend my sort of assessment of the u.s record in latin america before 1950 to sort of all of the interventions afterwards um 
but yeah, I, I think that's probably an unsatisfying answer because it does sort of uh, refuse to kind of pick a side. But but I think that's the truth. I mean, in international politics, as I sort of write in the conclusion, it's very easy to try and tell stories about good and evil. I think people, you know, we're tribal. We like having good and evil. We like having stories where there's a bad guy and a good guy. I think in international politics in particular, that rarely happens. I mean, sometimes it does. World War II is like one of, it's always nice to say, you know, you had the Nazis on the other side and that's like pretty straightforward. Um, but in most cases, you know, I, I think statesmen have to choose among options that have real trade-offs and no matter what you choose, there are going to be bad consequences. It's only a question of how do you minimize the trade-offs and how do you choose kind of the least bad option? And so I think in a lot of ways, my book is sort of a story, uh, hopefully an engaging one and hopefully, you know, a, a one that tells an important story, but ultimately a story of, you know, how the U.S. tried to choose the least bad option uh, as it was rising to power. Julia, you get the last question tonight. Okay, I'm unmuted. Um, I've long thought, I, first of all, I live in San Diego. I've been here for 50 years, so... You know, the border issues are a thing here. Um, but I've long thought that we have not done enough economically for the other countries in our hemisphere. Um, some of it, as you note, is racially based uh, historically. But I can't and I can't think of one Latin American country that's an economic power in any way. Do you think that that's an opportunity that the U.S. US has missed that maybe we haven't provided enough economic aid in the right way to help them build a solid economy. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely something to that. Um, what I guess I would say is that um, the uh, U.S. foreign aid as a practice only really began in the 1940s. Um, before that, the idea of the U.S. giving money to foreign nations was, I mean, just literally would have been left out of the room. Um, Woodrow Wilson, Secretary of State, actually proposed uh, a variation of the idea in the 1910s. And Wilson was like, are you kidding me? Like, we're not we're not doing that. The American people would never stand for it. Um, and it's only really in the 1940s, for reasons I, I touch on in my book, that the United States starts doing this. And it starts doing it in Latin America, actually, for the first time. And it does so expressly as part of its uh, great power competition with Nazi Germany. Um, the foreign aid is seen as a way of stabilizing countries in the Western Hemisphere to prevent them from being infiltrated by uh, German agents, essentially. And, um, you know, and that practice, of course, ends up kind of scaling up during the Cold War. And so I, I think the United States um, broadly speaking, its foreign policy, it has wanted to stabilize and strengthen its Latin American neighbors, which means I think the kind of trope of the United States economically exploiting Latin America is at minimum sort of too simple of a story. Because from the U.S. government perspective, there was always an attempt to sort of actually help Latin America develop and sort of prosper because that was part of our strategic interest. In practice, it didn't work out that way. Uh, for lots of reasons. One was that uh, American corporations didn't necessarily have that same interest. Oftentimes they were quite happy to exploit Latin America. And so the U.S. kind of did its best to stop that from happening, but oftentimes unsuccessfully. Um, and so there's a long and complicated kind of record there. Um, but part of it, too, is that, you know, I, to this day, I think it'd be fair to say that the U.S. struggles with development aid and kind of um, 
channeling it in ways that lead to the productive growth of industries and, and kind of long-term prosperity and economic stability. Um, that was certainly true in the 1940s and, and during the Cold War when the U.S. made these efforts in a real way, but um, they didn't always just pan out because the U.S. didn't necessarily know what it was doing. Um, and then, of course, the final factor is one of the kind of ironic, I think, um, consequences of U.S. interventionism is that in Latin America since the 1920s, but especially since, you know, the Cold War, um, there's been a, a real strain of sort of anti-Americanism that's sort of, I think, inherent in some of the politics of, of local nations, particularly on kind of the left side of the um, <clears throat> political spectrum. And I'm speculating a little bit here, but I would guess that at least part of Latin Americans' uh, economic, um, let me say this, one explanation someone could give, and I am not uh, qualified enough to give it. So with that caveat, one explanation could be that in part, Latin America chose during the Cold War to pursue an economic strategy that was not as capitalist as perhaps the United States would have maybe recommended. And one could argue that if, in fact, that economic strategy was less effective at economic growth, um, that it was in, in in an odd way kind of the result of U.S. interventionism in the sense that a lot of these Latin American uh, states ended up opposing what would have been a more effective economic strategy in large part because it was championed by the United States. Um, but again, that would that gets into all sorts of debates about, you know, kind of the, the merits of different economic systems and all that. And I'm certainly not qualified to speak to that. Um, but at least that would be, I think, one one thing that would be sort of interesting to look into as well. We are going to leave it there. Sean Mursky, thank you so much for joining us. The book is We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus. Uh, I learned a huge amount, uh, uh, and I recommend it extremely highly. Um, We will be back next week, not on Monday, because that'll still be Yom Kippur, but on Tuesday with Will Salatan, the author of that very rare thing, a book that is available for free. Uh, it is published by The Bulwark. Uh, and I think it started life as a what he imagined to be an article for The Bulwark, and it just grew and grew and grew into a book. It is called The Corruption of Lindsey Graham, and it is a case study in uh, in the effects of Trumpism in a previously sane politician um, uh, and a previously lucid politician. Um, uh, that'll be, I believe, Tuesday at eight o'clock. We will normally be Mondays at eight o'clock. I think still might fidget a little bit with the times. Uh, if you have enjoyed this, Share the YouTube uh, stream with others. Spread the word. Dogshirt TV is going to make a run at, it's going to be, you know, first at OAN and then at uh, uh, um, uh, Newsmax. And then we're going to go for Fox and then we're going to, or maybe CNN first and then take down Fox one by one. We're going to replace all of these. And then MSNBC, we're going to take all of these down with highly substantive 90-minute serious commercial-free content about books and other things that people actually should be spending more time with. We will have no punditry. We will have uh, uh, nobody talking about issues they don't know anything about. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a wild experiment uh, in commercial-free substance. 
Uh, and uh, that does it for us. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Sean. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ben.